So this week we are into the third of the seven churches in Revelation. And so we're in Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to be reading from verse 12, the letter to the church in Pergamum. And perhaps the best thing to do is to read it. I'll make some exegetical comments in relation to the text, and then we'll look at some of the ways that we can begin to apply this message to our own lives and understand what it is that God is wanting to say to us today. So let's turn to Revelation 2 and verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. So this is a, a, a passage, a letter, a message to the church in Pergamum that has a degree of gravity about it. There is a kind of a, a growing sense of alarm in what it is that Jesus is communicating to the church. The first church, remember, was a church that had forsaken its first love, the church in Ephesus. Last week, we looked at a church where Jesus had only praise and unequivocal praise at that. He said, I know that you're poor and you're afflicted, yet you are rich. And we looked at some of what that might mean for us today, that the Lord would look on us in similar fashion. But today, we have a church in which there appears to be a degree of menace. Notice the way that Jesus describes Pergamum itself. This is the place where Satan lives, where Satan has his throne. Well, Let's first of all understand what and where Pergamum was. Pergamum was the administrative center for the Roman Empire in this region. The largest city, Ephesus, was the mercantile and commercial center. Smyrna, the the city we looked at last week, was the athletic center. Pergamum was the governmental center. Pergamum had grown up as a seat of government and as a place of education. It contained some of the great libraries of the world, libraries that even rivaled the library at Alexandria, the greatest library in the ancient world. So identified 
was Pergamum with the task of education and with the books and scrolls that were gathered in the library, that the word parchment and Pergamum come from the same root. And so this place is really a place where the brilliant and the educated would gather. And of course, when you have the brilliant and the educated, you usually have the people who want to avail themselves of the insights and the understandings that those folks can offer and afford. And so you have the power brokers that gather to those places. And so it was that government and education grew up in Pergamum. Pergamum is this remarkable place. It has really nothing to commend it in terms of its capacity to do trade other than its ability to trade in the, in the exchange of ideas. And here, in this place, where the Roman government was centered, was also centered one of the most pernicious cults of the Roman times. You see, what happened in the world of the Roman Empire was that people began to imagine that because the Roman Empire had grown to such enormous power and significance, it must be the blessed empire of the gods. And if it's the blessed empire of the gods, then the one who ruled over that empire was probably selected by the gods to be included in the pantheon of the Greco-Roman world of gods. There were hundreds of them. And into that world, the emperor was adopted. On some occasions, the emperor, probably because of his own vanity and the, the sycophants around him, they believed that perhaps the gods were incarnate in the person of the emperor. And so what grew up was the cult of emperor worship. All around the ancient world, temples were built to the emperor. And here in Pergamum was the center of the emperor worshiping cult. Now what was expected was that faithful citizens of the empire would go into the temple and they would burn incense as a votive offering to the emperor. The emperor, of course, uh, not being a god, don't tell him, but not being a god didn't know about any of this. But, um, but nevertheless, this was part of the kind of fabric of Roman life. And if you did not go to the temple of the emperor to burn the incense, then you began to be suspected as someone who was anti-Roman. Of course, it was tremendously difficult for Christians to live in this environment. Christians believed that their king was Jesus. They did not believe that a human being could be God other than Jesus himself. And of course, that meant that they couldn't fulfill the aspirations of the Roman authorities or the Roman government, even when they lived in the center of Roman power in Pergamum. One particular individual who stood against this was Antipas. Antipas was brought before the Roman courts, was found guilty of being anti-Roman, 
and as a seditious individual, he was tortured and then was roasted alive in a brass kettle. His screams entertained the people as they listened to him die. The objective was terror. The Roman authorities wanted people to be terrified and in their terror to comply with their desire for obedience. Even in those days, says Jesus, when Antipas is killed in this most terrible of fashion, you did not deny my name. But then Jesus goes on to say that he has a few things against the church in Pergamum. He says, there are those who who follow the teaching of Balaam who led who, who led the children of Israel into sexual sin and immorality, who led them to offer, offer sacrifices to idols. And in like manner, says Jesus, you have some of the people in your congregation who follow the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So, so what is all of that about? Well, we're not entirely sure about the Nicolaitans, but we're able to piece together an understanding both from the scriptures and from the external manuscripts that are available to us from historical sources. It would appear that there was a man called Nicholas who gained some notoriety within the region because he was teaching a particular view of Christianity that allowed people to compromise their faith in certain ways. And so really, what this passage is all about and what Jesus is addressing in the church is the tendency, perhaps in all of us, to compromise. He says, now you didn't compromise when you were faced with the brute strength, the brute power, the force of the imperial might of Rome. You didn't didn't falter when my faithful witness was put to death. But though force didn't lead you to compromise, a new philosophy did. What is it that Jesus is referring to? Well, Balaam was uh, invited by the king of the Moabites. You can look in, um, in Numbers and see this story. Uh, he was invited by, ba- uh, by Balak, the, um, the, the king of the, the Moabites, to come and curse the children of Israel. The children of Israel were enormously numerous. They were traveling from Egypt to the Promised Land, and they were skirting the nation of Moab, and they were causing all kinds of anxiety. What were they going to do with all of these immigrant people who were going to come and take all of their resources? And so so Balak invited Balaam, a man with international notoriety, a man who is known outside of the scriptures from the archaeological record of the day, a man who was known for his 
spiritual capacity and insight, he asked him to come and do the job of cursing the children of Israel. But he wasn't able to do it. God wouldn't allow him. And you'll remember that on his journey to that, that, uh, that task, his donkey even intercepted the journey and the Lord spoke through the donkey. I, I take great delight in that. That, um, that God is able to speak through a donkey. And uh, maybe, well, who knows, each Sunday... Well, he wasn't able to he wasn't able to curse the children of Israel. But he did give a strategy to the king. And the strategy was why not offer the unattached women of Moab to the Israelite men? They'll bring with them their gods and their worldview and they'll lead the children of Israel away from the Lord who loves them. And that's precisely what happened. They were wedded to people with a different worldview. They were wedded to a people with a different worldview. And Jesus says, likewise, or in like manner, you put up with the teachings of the Nicolaitans. What was it that was in like manner? Well, the most popular philosophy of the day, originating in the thinking of the greats of Greek philosophy, Plato and Aristotle, was that life was divided into two radically separate realities. The world was separated into physical reality and spiritual reality. And that each human being was likewise separated into physical and spiritual being. A human being in their body was one thing, but they could be another thing in their spirit. There was a radical separation between the physical and the spiritual universe. And you say, well, that kind of sounds all right, except that it's completely opposite to what the Bible teaches. You see, you and I, the Bible teaches us, is unable, you and I are unable to separate flesh from spirit. Only God is able to do that. In fact, God has made it absolutely clear that his intention is that there is always an integration between the created order of the flesh and the created order of the spirit. How do we know that? Because Jesus rose from the dead with a body. With a body. If there was supposed to be a radical separation between body and spirit, then Jesus would have raised as a spirit. And here's even more for us to think about. Not only was Jesus raised from the dead physically, he ascended into heaven with a body. He didn't leave his body behind. 
today. Just like Luther says in his marvelous hymn that we sang at the beginning, there is a man who stands in heaven on our behalf. He's both God and man. But he is still a body, a spiritual body, a, a new kind of human being, and yet, and yet he is physical in the sense that we would recognize it. He has scars on his hands. He has scars on his feet. Now, that particular philosophy is not particularly current today. It does manifest itself in certain Eastern religions like Buddhism and Hinduism, but it's not, it's not the kind of the, the principal philosophy that you'll encounter every day. We'll get onto that in a minute. But here's the thing. If you believe that, if you believe that there is a separation between your spiritual life and your physical life, then you can begin to entertain some compromising ideas that might really help you if you live in Pergamum. Think about it for a minute. If your spiritual life is not touched by what you do with your body, then you could go to the emperor's temple and burn incense to the emperor, and yet in your heart still worship Jesus. And it wouldn't be worship of the, temper, of the emperor at all. You see, you could, you could teach the people, don't worry, just sing a worship song as you go into the temple, do your Roman duty, and then you won't have to suffer the persecution that everyone else faces. Because after all, what you do in your body doesn't touch what happens in your spirit. You could go from that place and you could suggest this, as the Nicolaitans were doing. Something along the lines of what Balaam suggested. You could say to a person, now I know it's, I know it's tricky living in this first century Roman world, and I know that it's a bit decadent, and I know that people have a lot of different views about sexuality and how you're supposed to express your sexuality, but don't worry. Because whatever you do with your body, it doesn't affect your spiritual life. It was that kind of compromise that Jesus was addressing. He was saying that kind of lifestyle is not a lifestyle that I can either endorse or embrace. Well, what about you and I? What are the things that would perhaps cause us to compromise? Well, it may be that you've encountered similar kinds of philosophy, like the one that I just suggested, that Greek philosophy of separating body from soul. And it may well be that you've entertained the compromising thoughts that that would bring with it. But the most common form of worldview that you and I will encounter that will lead us into compromising positions is what we call existentialism. Most people don't use that word because it's too long a word. But really what existentialism does for us is simply this. It places you at the center of your universe 
and me at the center of my universe. And what happens is that the world then becomes defined by something other than what the Lord knows is best for us. Now, it's not that someone is teaching you this philosophy in the classroom. It's not that you, you know, somebody sits down and says, now, I'm going to teach you how you can be the center of your universe. It's much more like this. Every message that you pick up from our consumeristic society, our world of social media, our engagement with media of all kinds, communicates to us and inculcates into our life that us and our needs and desires are truly the most important thing that we'll encounter every day. Here's a strap line. Because you're worth it. Now, the particular cosmetic brand that projected that bumper sticker to the world was not saying anything about the way that God thinks about you. They weren't doing that to promote an idea of people understanding their value before the Lord. What they were attempting to do was the same thing that everybody that's trying to sell you something is trying to do. And that is to make you believe that your needs are essential to your life. That your needs, your wants, your desires, your aspirations are at the very heart of what it means for you to be who you are. And very soon, God no longer takes up residence at the center of your universe, but you take up residence in the center of your universe, and I take up residence in the center of mine. And the next thing that happens is this. Because you're at the center of your universe, and I'm at the center of mine, you have to have a different truth than my truth. And so now truth is relative. Because truth has to be defined by the one who's at the center of the universe. Otherwise, it's not truth. And so now we do not have absolute truth. We have relative truth. We have your truth and my truth. Which means that I get to do what I want to do and you get to do what you want to do and everybody gets to be happy. That's great. What could be wrong with that? Except the chaos that we see around us. You see, the reality is that these pernicious, apparently little philosophies work their way into our lives. And before long, we begin functioning with an entirely different worldview than the one that the Lord provides us with. And it's then that we find ourselves led down the path, maybe just one step at a time, down the path to fundamental compromise. Now, just 
a caveat before we continue because it's important that we get this. I know that many of us have been raised in religious backgrounds and we all know that religion is not the same thing as having a relationship with Jesus. And in general, religious people are afraid that God's out to get them. You know, they've kind of got this this kind of fear, not a fear of the Lord, but a fear that God's going to get them. And, um, and that's because of the way that we've been formed and shaped by tradition and legalism to make us believe that it's by our behavior and by the things that we do that we please God, which of course is absolutely not the truth. The only way that we please God is to have faith in Jesus Christ. And so we start hearing messages like this on compromise and we're thinking, ooh, that probably is me, but I don't want to really think about it because that means that God's going to get me before I leave the building. And if he doesn't get me today, maybe he'll get me tomorrow. And then you read words like this. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And you think, see, I told you. That sounds terrible. But of course, we hear those words, but we don't read them carefully enough. Because here's the thing. Jesus is not out to get you, but to set you free. He's not out to crush us, but to liberate us. And listen again to what the words say. Repent, therefore. That means allow your mind to be changed so that you're not embracing this worldview that will lead you down the wrong path. Allow your mind to be changed. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus is not out to get us. He's out to get the devil. And he's out to get the devil's minions. And he's out to get those that are committed to following him. If you look at the other places in Revelation where the sword of his mouth is doing is doing the work that you would imagine a sword does. You go to Revelation 19 and it's very clear that the Lord is using the sword of his mouth to come against the enemies of God, the devil and his horde. And so Jesus is not intending to come with his sword to do you harm. Think of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They're thrown into the fiery furnace. And when they're thrown into the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he looks in and he says, what is it that I can see? There's one like the son of man who is with them and they're walking around in the flames. Nebuchadnezzar were thrown into the fiery furnace bound hand and foot. And the only thing that the flames consumed were the things that held them. 
the flames, set them free. And so when Jesus comes and he draws his great Thracian sword, which is being referred to here, this great long double-edged sword that would be used for acts of judgment, he draws this great sword and you think, this is it, I'm done. And he wields his sword, all he does is cut the bonds that hold your wrists and tie you down. Jesus is here to set us free and do mischief to our enemy. So how then should we continue? How would we just summarize where it is that we're up to right now? Let's just look at a a quick summary. First of all, we need biblical clarity to understand what it is that we've looked at today. The biblical worldview is entirely different from the worldview that I've suggested to you is the most common worldview that we encounter. The biblical worldview is that God is at the center of the universe and his truth is the defining truth and his truth is the absolute truth. But along with that, we understand that biblical clarity reveals to us a God of compassion. A God who's not out to get us, but to save us. And he's always in the business of saving us. The way that the New Testament describes salvation is that I have been saved. I am being saved. And I will be saved. It's always a story, a journey, a narrative. And we're in the midst of it right now. And it's the same compelling compassion that drives the Lord to reach out to us and continue the work of salvation as he sets us free more and more. And what, of course, this does is to build our sense and our understanding of what it means to stand as a child of God. It gives us our confidence. Biblical clarity, God's compassion, my confidence. So let's look then at the whole issue of compromise from the point of view of the text that we've looked at and the lives that we live. So compromise from this passage to the church in Pergamum falls into two categories. The first category is compromise that is produced through persecution. Now, not many of us are going to be roasted alive in a bronze kettle. Not many of us here are going to lose our lives because we're Christians. But of course, throughout the world, there are more martyrs today than there have ever been. And so, although it's not true for us, it's most certainly true of other Christians in other places. And persecution causes us to want to compromise because the devil is behind it and the devil always wants to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his job. That's what he loves doing more than anything else and it produces in us fear. 
And on the basis of that fear, we find ourselves compromising. But it may be that you feel that someone is going to steal your opportunity or kill your ideas or destroy your reputation because you stand for biblical clarity and God's truth. And it may well be that that fear causes you to shrink back from your position of witness. I don't know. But the more compelling message that Jesus communicates to the church in Pergamon is a church about permissiveness rather than persecution. Permissiveness that is led by the temptations that are common to all people, the temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness, the temptations of appetite, approval, and ambition. And of course, what that's all about is a lack of faith. Now, it's fascinating that it's that area that Jesus addresses at the end of his letter. But before we get there, let me just, let me just give you this little bit of pastoral insight, counsel, and advice. There is something that can remove your fear and grow your faith. And Jesus, Jesus dealt with this in the very last metaphor that he used to teach his disciples. We're fortunate that John, who is the human author of the book of Revelation, is also the human author of the Gospel of John and of the letters of John. And if we go to those places and see how the Holy Spirit led him and inspired him to record and remember the works of Jesus, then we see in John 15 that Jesus is now leaving the upper room. They've competed, they've completed their time of the Passover and they're walking through the streets of Jerusalem. And as Jesus is walking through the streets of Jerusalem past the temple that bears on its outer stone facade, the image of Israel, which is the vine. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. You're the branches. My father is the gardener. Then, and then he says this. He says, you cannot bear fruit unless you abide. And it's quite clear that we can't abide unless the branch that's born fruit is prepared to be pruned. You see, all of the people that Jesus was talking to on that occasion, they all had vines. We're told from contemporary sources like Josephus and others that everybody had a vine in their backyard, and so everybody knew what he was talking about. He said, when the branch bears fruit, immediately you cut the branch off, and you can't see the branch anymore. And we're the branches. The branch is cut right back so that it nestles inside the vine. We abide in the vine. And unless we abide in the vine, we cannot bear fruit. And Jesus says this, abide in my love. John 15, 9, abide 
in my love. In his first letter, after the gospel, he writes the first letter, chapter 4, verse 18. He says, perfect love drives out what? Perfect love drives out? Perfect love drives out? Jesus says, abide in me. Abide in me. Abide in my love. And what will the love do? It'll drive out fear. And so the fear produced by a world that is set against us will be driven out of our hearts by the love in which we're called to abide. But then Jesus says this, he says, he says, abide in me and let my words abide in you. Faith comes by hearing what? Faith comes by hearing the? Faith comes by hearing? Faith comes by hearing the word of God. Faith. So have you got lots of fear? The solution is the love of Jesus. Have you got a lack of faith? The solution is the word of Jesus. The word builds our faith. His love drives away the fear. It's fear that causes us to compromise to the world. It's a lack of faith that causes us to compromise to the permissiveness that's on offer. It's a wonderful ending to this letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. There is manna. There is a white stone. There is a new name. If the compromise is as it was for Pergamum towards a permissive world that is suggesting to you that you're the center of the world and so therefore your needs are more important than anyone else. If you have lived in a world where you've heard the messages over and over again that tell you that your needs and your desires and your dreams are to be fulfilled always, then you, like me, are in a world where we walk the path between discipleship and compromise. And the compromise is driven, of course, by a lack of faith, but it's caused by the temptations that are common to all of us. Appetite, 
Well, what would deal with our appetites for food and drink and sex? What would, what would deal with the appetite? A secret resource that Jesus has available that he calls manna. Who's going to meet our needs? Are we going to meet our own needs or are we going to go to Jesus with our needs and say, Lord, this is truly who I am. I need you to meet my needs. And Jesus says, do you know what? It's fortunate that you asked me for that because I've got some manna for you. And it meets all of your appetites and it supplies all of your needs. Maybe you have this, this sense that maybe it's not the appetites that are the big thing for you, but maybe the thing about approval. Maybe, maybe you feel like you need the affirmation of others. You, you check out your social media stuff to see how many likes you get, and it's become a little bit obsessive. And it's become a little bit self-defining. It's become a little concerning even to you. And you go to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I, th I think this is me. And he says, well, that's fortunate because I've got a white stone for you. And you say, really? Is that another social media platform? <laughs> no. You see, the white stone was given to the victor in the games that gave them admission to the victor's banquet. It was a ticket of admission that said, you're approved of. It's the biggest thumbs up you could ever get. If you're wrestling with a sense of insecurity that leads you to look to others for your approval, Jesus says, I've got just what you need. It's my approval. It's my acceptance. It's my invitation to you. You're always included with me. You're never excluded. Or maybe, or maybe it's not the appetites or the approval. Maybe it's ambition. Maybe you'd like to really make a name for yourself. You'd like to do something great. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but it becomes this compelling thing in you. It becomes this driving force. It becomes all-consuming, and it, it defines your relationships, your, your relationship in your marriage, your relationship to your children. Everything is in second place to the driving determination for you to fulfill your ambition and get a name for yourself and do something great. And Jesus says, it's just as well you came to me because I've got a name for you. And it's a greater name than any name you can win by fulfilling any of your ambitions. And it's a name known just between us. And it's a great name. And so if you need to be satisfied, we come to Jesus and Jesus says, I have manna for you. If you're insecure, then we come to Jesus and Jesus says, I've got access for you into all the approval and acceptance you need. And if it's ambition, 
then it's perhaps significance that you're looking for. Jesus says, I've got all of that too. You can be satisfied, secure, and significant with me if I'm at the center of the universe. But if you're at the center of the universe, then none of those things are certain. Does anybody believe this that's listening to me right now? Great. I always like it when I get at least 10%. Makes me feel like it was worth doing all the preparation and the preaching. I've got 10% of the people, that's great. We can go home happy. Does anybody believe this stuff? The Lord Jesus is the center of the universe, whether he be the center of our universe today or not. He is the Lord of glory. He is the King of kings. And he is the one to which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He is the one to whom we go. And as we wrestle with the realities of life, and as we live with these conflicting worldviews, he says, come to me, and I'll provide you with everything you need to be satisfied. I'll give you all the security that your heart has longed for, and I'll give you a significance that's greater than anything that can be bestowed upon you by the world. Because I'm the king, and I can do that, and no one else can. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word to us today. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing letter to these people so long ago. Thank you, Lord, that you choose in your goodness and grace to cause your word to come alive to us, that we might receive it to our souls and walk with it and allow it to do its work in our lives. Lord, we pray that we would continue this day and throughout this week in your love that drives out fear and in your word that creates faith. And we pray this, Jesus, for your glory and in your name and all God's people say.